Welcome back, people. Episode number 27. Today, what we are dealing with is disruption. We keep hearing about different technologies, getting it done, different things, 3D printing, prefabrication, kit of parts, but which one is real? Have a seat, sit down, listen to the number one, one of the number one innovators in the space, speak, and learn a thing or two about a thing or two. Welcome back to Real Tech Talk, baby. That's why we're here, bro. This is Real Tech Talk. Boom, chocolate. So who the hell are you, bro? You know? What are you into? What do you do? Yo, you can keep it real here. Tell me. Tell me about these real estate players. Eric Brody is the managing principal of CEMVC LLC. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of CEMVC LLC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of CEMVC LLC may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back, people. Real Tech Talk, episode number 27, Deuce 7. Stop playing with me. Every time we tell you, we are going to bring technologists that are absolutely changing the game. So let me set the stage for you. Today, we got Kubi Technologies. We'll go into the background, but I want him to drive right into what he's changing. You keep hearing about it. 3D printing. You keep hearing about modular construction, kit of parts, prefabrication. But what is the one that is changing the game? My man today, Alex, thank you for coming through on the podcast. I appreciate you having you here. Now, historically, I say, what's your background? Where are you coming from? Please do tell. But then I want to dive right into what you're doing because I only have a half an hour. And honestly, it's so fascinating and I love talking to you about it. So give us a little bit about how you got into technology, why you're here, and then what we're doing. Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. Sure. I'm a recent listener, but you and I have known each other for a little bit now. Um, you've got. I can't believe you just hold. recently, bro. Like and follow. Stop. <laughs> and then we changed that. Don't worry. <laughs> now we have to. We're obligated. But uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, my background, I think, similar to yours. I come from a real estate family. I've touched buildings my whole life. Looked at buildings my whole life. Um, I've studied engineering in school, and I always joke because I could never decide between technology and real estate. Luckily, you're an investor in prop tech. That's a word now. Those two worlds are fused. Um, I Where'd you from, go to school? Uh, I got a full ride to go to Drexel to Drexel. study both business and engineering. Which is Philly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Grew up in Philly, mm-hmm. originally from Russia. Um, Mother Russia. Yeah, controversial now. <laughs> uh, controversial topic. Yeah, but uh, my mom and I moved to Philly, so I naturally went to school there. Um, yeah, because your mom wouldn't let you uh, go very far from her. No, I, just, I think like being first generation, you kind of, you know, you don't have many options. Like, of oh, course. it's in the backyard. You kind of just, you know. It was one of those things. I mean, in retrospect, I would have chose something maybe more um, namey, if you will. Sure. But no, I don't. I don't regret it. It was a lot of fun. They had this like work program the whole time, mm-hmm. so you got to work full time. I got a lot of exposure. It was great. I think. But it was real estate. All yeah, real estate. M- mostly, yeah. So private equity, banking, real estate kind of floated in that area, but mostly real estate, institutionally development, private equity have touched probably every asset class under the sun. And you were in a relatively tech forward private equity real estate space, right? Weren't you at WeWork for a hot minute? Yeah. So post my institutional days, I got recruited to WeWork and fairly early. I mean, uh, this was like maybe 500th employee, something something super, super early. Mm. And I left, there was 13,000 people. Um, you know, everyone loves to shit on WeWork now. Um, but the truth is, it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of exposure. And at the time, WeWork was not a prop tech company. That word didn't exist. Right. That was at the time when the fifth walls of the world were just emerging. Um, and everyone Which for that, my audience, fifth wall is the largest venture yeah. capital capitalist in the space. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. anyone that basically builds an operating company and is backed by venture that sits on top of real estate, that's prop tech. Mm-hmm. And now there's construction tech, which is a spinoff, et cetera. 
So, you know, at WeWork, I was, I was working on special projects within real estate, everything from launching WeLive to trying to pivot to asset management and, and you know, property management agreements, all the way to some aspects of the fund that WeWork launched. Um, lots of fun, lots of exposure. Again, met everyone, like literally every founder, every VC focused in the space mm. met through WeWork. That's why I give WeWork a lot of credit to now being that person that is super eloquent at both understanding how to build a building, how to invest in a building, but also how to build an operating company that sits on top of real estate. Um, after that, I went to to Lifehouse, which was another venture-backed company that's doing extremely well. But that's a tech company, Lifehouse? Yeah. So why did you pivot? You were in uh, real estate. You were doing your thing. You went to school for that. You had your engineering background. You go to WeWork, which was fronting like they were tech. Yeah, yeah. Then why the, the um, actual jump? Actually, funny enough, uh, Lifehouse was started by a former TPG, Starwood, um, Sedell Group um, investor. So it was actually even more real estate than, than tech, mm-hmm. but it was a tech company through and through. Um, the reason being, I, I, don't, I, I love the idea of building technology into real estate. Just one of those things where same reason why investors get excited about it. Just this massive industry, very little change. How do you implement change by the way that technology companies grow and, um, and, and become more productive? So I was just very interested in that. And Lifehouse was uh, kind of a good spinoff from WeWork. And it was it was complete opposite in the sense that WeWork was definitely the wrong cost of capital. It grew in the wrong way, raising venture effectively to... So let's just talk about that for a second. You're saying that WeWork's problem was the type of money they used for was sure. like nitrous. Like it just burns fast yeah. and it's got to make a lot of return, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know your right cost of capital when you buy a building, right? It's debt, it's equity, but... Um, Meaning the interest charged on the anything. The risk reward which... necessary to meet that type of growth can't happen through real estate mm-hmm. or anything that looks close to real estate. Right. It must um, need to be much faster, right? Like this, yeah, you know, this exactly. 2% growth, 3% growth, that does not work when your money needs a massive return. Yeah. I, I will say though, there's a lot of uh, people that obviously, and maybe I'm contrarian for this, that say that real, you know, WeWork was not a technology company. However, there were aspects of WeWork that were technology businesses in the sense that find me any developer today that can build out 60,000 square foot spaces 15 times in a month, right? Right. That takes certain coordination. And that's why you see so many entrepreneurs spin off from WeWork mm. because there was pieces within WeWork that are now standalone businesses or are tangential to the businesses those founders started that come from WeWork. Or the t- total disruption of office as a result of WeWork, yeah, right? I mean, I mean they did it. Like The, for, the for idea sure. was there. For sure. Just maybe the wrong execution, wrong cost of capital. So then why? Okay. So you went to this real estate Yeah. Lifehouse tech. is the complete opposite. Lifehouse said, hey, we'll be asset light the whole time. And uh, Rami, the founder, he built a business effectively for managing mom and pop boutique hotels, which historically are super unprofitable. Mm-hmm. So he built a tech stack to manage those hotels better in an asset light way. So they were just a brand and asset manager of a ton of technology. And did it create a brand as a result yeah, of it? for sure. But the faster way to grow, which now, you know, they're backed by booking.com and and well, effectively Kayak, which is owned by Booking mm-hmm. and, you know, big VCs like Tiger and whatnot. Um, but the way they grow now is they white label their technology stack and effectively, you know, they spread through hotel owners and operate their hotels in a white label capacity. Amazing. Um, so now you were getting that taste of tech. Yeah. It was hitting your wheelhouse of loving real estate and technology, but then yeah. why the plunge? Yeah. No, I mean, after that, I went back to traditional real estate. I started uh, and helped build a business with the former chief development officer from WeWork, who's one of the most talented developers, I think, in the in the country today. Um, he had a he had a big GC that effectively rolled into WeWork, and he was the one responsible for building out those mm-hmm. 15 locations a month. So that takes a special type of, you can attest to this, that's 100%. a special type of developer. 
Um, and he, after WeWork, essentially took his family business and turned that into a asset management slash investment management firm called Spaxel. Um, and while I was there, we built out a pretty big team and uh, bought a Probably the one of the biggest portfolios during COVID of small cap multi, about 2,500 units mm-hmm. in New Jersey. and then Which was a good moment because that was a good plan. Yeah, for sure. Now, this is a whole topic in its own right of the next SFR being small cap multi. Um, Single family uh, residence. Let me just tell my acronyms here. Yes, you know? sorry. Yeah, I sometimes will- No, it's all good. In the jargon. Um, and, and he's building you know several thousand units in the Bronx of affordable. And he was always very tech forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that process, I saw kind of his approach into, into building. And he was always trying to find shortcuts, which I think effectively is what a developer is. A good developer, one that comes from GC land, not many developers. Yeah, you got, but they're from. looking at millimeters and milliseconds of advantage, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And I started uh, myself looking into uh, different construction solutions. So and I you started, saw how fucked up construction was, right? You realized it was just a mess. I, I was never the guy that went to construction sites. Um, this is this is even something I'm learning now, ironically, because um, you know, from an institutional perspective, you kind of are the check and you do all this behind the desk work. You're never yep. actually showing up that often. Um, but in that process, I started interviewing um, all of the existing solutions in the construction tech space, which is contact now, kind of the pivot of what we're talking mm-hmm. about now and what I do. Um, I started interviewing everyone, like you said, from 3D printing to prefab to modular. None of it made sense. As just to research, just because you're like, I, I want to do something to on my own. I, I wanted to be a customer. Mm-hmm. Maybe on my own, maybe implement in this you know, development organization that we were running. Right, because you had the capital background, understanding yeah. what money needs, and you're like, fine. So maybe I want to be a consumer of some of these technologies. Totally. What is it to, to well, affect some business plan? I always was at the forefront of saying, hey, if I'm going to be in traditional real estate, we got to use all the tools I learned, all the stuff that's out there, all the founders that I'm you know, super close to if they're building something, all the venture groups I'm close to. Which is quite unique, right? Because everyone's a a laggard and you you wanted to be an adopter. I was the person that was not only the adopter, but understood both the worlds. I can call bluff, but I can also know how to implement. So I was, I was, I still, I think to this date, am one of the few people that understand super well, both of those sides, tech and the real estate side, just traditional real estate. Those two worlds, as you know, do not speak. No. No, speak, hence your, you know, the podcast. You're trying to bridge those A hundred percent. Um, so I was looking for construction technology solutions. The existing things out there that were backed by tons of venture didn't make much sense to me. Um, weren't practical to implement. It wasn't cheaper. Why would I take the risk? Which, using though, it? give the example because I love the way um, you explain it. When we were on the phone and we were chit-chatting about your company, which yeah. is called Kubi Technologies, by the way, yep. you brought up like – I was like – you know, what are the technologies changing so let, the game and you yeah, laid it out? Let's dive into it. So like, let's start with the problem. So I think I, I like to zoom out when I do this. When we think about the fact that there's 8 billion people in the world, you got to, you know, constantly think about the fact that they need, you know, shelter. Yeah. They need everything from the places they live, work and play. Hospitals, schools, buildings, housing, it doesn't matter. We need more of it. The biggest problem is, well, there's can really- we, Can I ask you a quick question just- tangentially how do we know that's a problem because you're into the data like yeah how do you know i mean it's very simple like we're uh, you know there's one percent vacancy in the residential market in new york city for example right right? and for that reason rents are super high and then i mean it doesn't take a genius every headline every other day is there's a housing crisis right Right. you go and try to find the home to buy it's unaffordable and also you know you're overpaying and and have no due diligence to close in the home um, that's kind of an obvious, but oh, it, agreed. By yeah. the way, if you look, New York is like you got to make a fifty million dollar move in twenty four hours with no yeah, diligence, yeah, and that's just, just on the development aspect. Imagine on like a, a condo or trying I, to make I guess an acquisition. Someone could argue that's a unique outlier, right? New York City, it's dense, et cetera, but it's it's really everywhere around the country. I mean, 
that's like a much deeper conversation. It's like affordability all right, and all that. So stuff. I that's, agree with you. Yeah. There's a shortage. There's, there's, there's a crisis. Eight, eight billion people. There's not enough people to build. That's the biggest issue. Like if you really break down why construction in quotes is broken and why people say that all the time, there's just not enough people able to build on that demand. The reason being is one in four construction workers today are 45 and older. That's a stat check, but that's that should be right. Um, I'm just kidding. It's definitely right. I know this for a fact. I don't know if we got it. I don't know if they actually checked that, boys. So I don't know. We're going to have to check them. But all right, let, let's assume much, much older. And Fine. Everyone older, this. not enough. We hear it all the time. You've seen the stat, right? It's like 500,000 workers needed today, and that's even with slowdown in demand over the next couple of years. And that's in the U.S. alone. That number is going to grow into the millions. And it's kind of obvious. I mean, like, I love to do this thing. Like, you guys are young. Do you guys have any friends that are construction workers? No. All right. Well, this, I do have one. You do, how close? Like, close or like super? A close friend? Yeah, like close a close friend. Age. I mean, we're not that close. All right. All right. <laughs> well, like in most but cases, agreed. Yeah, most 100%. cases, nine out of 10 times you go anywhere, no one even has a third cousin that's a construction worker. Right. It's a dying industry, right. unfortunately. And it's funny. With massive demand. Massive. Like, I, I always say that if I had a kid today and they were a, like, I don't know, they're 18 years old, don't go to college. Go build a, you know, plumbing business. Dude, I say that shit point. all the time. I'm you, like, you, you got to be a plumber, electrician. You have a brain, get on it. Yeah. You get 30 employees on there. You have a million dollar business. Yeah. You didn't go to college. That's right. It's That's the, the demand. It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, I'm sure soon we'll see a roll up of these kind of archaic businesses and someone will do a PE play of some sort of sophistication. I'm sure of it. I, I, um, I'm looking at one now. Hopefully they'll yeah. be on the pod and I'll invest in them. But yeah. yes, I agree. It's there. It's right in the background of us. So, so you know, going back to we. So there, you identified the problem, but we agree. It's all yeah. fucked up. We need more That's supply. That's one problem. There's, yeah. not enough, there's not enough people to deliver on the demand. That's one problem. The second problem is construction hasn't really changed in 200 years. There's always a running joke. It's uh, I hear it all the time. It's like if Jesus were to come back to earth, the only thing he'd recognize is construction. Mm -hmm. I've heard that one a couple of times. I like that one. Um, but it's true. Like if you look at fundamentally how products have evolved and if you just take every other industry over the last, say, 100 years, 7 to 8x productivity gain, something like that. Yeah, we're minus. Construction is a 1% productivity gain. Um, so nothing has fundamentally changed. But think about all the technology that's been implemented across everywhere else. So there's things that need to change. But the, the truth is, this isn't obvious. Like there's so much money going into folks trying to industrialize construction. And by industrialize, I think for folks on your podcast, it's imagine the way Toyota builds a car, mm -hmm. right? There's a conveyor belt, there's an assembly line and a system. The current solutions today, I mean, first, let's go back like 50 years. We used to be able to buy homes in Sears catalogs, right? If you remember that, or I, I, I don't remember, but I hear it. You I'm, know? I'm not aging. I'm saying if you remember the concept of it. No, I know you yeah, weren't aging, yeah, me, by okay. the way. I did take offense. Yeah, okay. Just <laughs> people talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it used to be able to buy. Post I look good for seventy. No, well, <laughs> uh, that's fine. But okay, but yeah. I, so I agree, right? So they could purchase a home. Back then, yeah. And Russia actually was a funny one. They were the first to implement really prefab. They used to have these concrete slabs that basically would stack on top of each other. I used to live in one of those. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, we've gotten away from that because people wanted customization. Like everyone right. went to a one-off house. There right. was no like cookie cutter. Like, yeah, and there's it's very hard to standardize. And yeah. even from a tech space, it's all different technologies. That's another one. Policy and code got more complicated. So Right, because the know, fire code, right? We didn't want everyone dying and burning down, right? That's pretty good, I think. Yeah. Um, but the solutions that today exist over the, say, the last you know, 10, 20 years is I break it up into three like major categories. Right, which is what I wanted just to back up. The industry itself has point solutions, and then you see some of these massive solutions. You guys went after a A to Z 
yeah. solution, of which there are three categories today you explained. Yeah. Name the three categories. So first, in terms of like, you say it well, it's like, I, I call it Band-Aid and not Band-Aid. Software right now and what everyone loves to back, that's a Band-Aid for right. the industry. It's like a temporary solve, sure. but unfortunately, like you live in sticks and bricks and physical things. So that ultimately makes it hardware. So it kind of has to be a you know end-to-end -end solution. Um, in terms of end-to-end -end and full vertical integration, there's different business models of it, which will dive as a subset. You know, I break it up into three categories. There's modular, there's prefab, and there's 3D printing. You know, I think And we saw, so let's start with 3D yeah. printing and tell yeah. them why. It's interesting, but why you think it's that's not the solution? Look, all four venture betting on really, really exciting, interesting things. That's what venture is. Like you take the riskiest thing that has a binary outcome. In most cases, hardware and what people call deep tech, frontier tech, there's different words for it, but it's ultimately hardware, mm -hmm. usually are binary solutions. Either it becomes really, really massive, and, right. you know, true moats because there's real IP or it doesn't. Um, 3D printing is one of those things where do your, does your audience understand like conceptually what a 3D printing ability? I mean, I'll, like, to break it down, yeah, you know, just just quickly. So no matter what, we need a foundation. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's no way of printing a foundation. So we're excavating mm -hmm. and we're pouring a foundation. Yeah. The way well, I understood, you can, do screw pile, you can do screw pile foundations, which you don't need to pour for. But okay, fine, yeah. fine. So when the when the when the when the when the superstructure is so light that you don't need to really bear or get behind, yeah. below the frost line, fine. But you need a trade to go in to provide something that's going to transfer the load above stuff. grade into the into the ground. Three yep. D printing is then what I thought what, what you had explained to me is it's now like a coordinated superstructure. Right, so it's it, framing. It, it, You're it, effectively solving the framing piece. Okay. You being in the construction world, you'll be the first to validate that framing is not necessarily the most labor slash skilled intensive piece, and it doesn't take the longest. No, and it's balloon framing. When you get used to wood, it moves relatively well. So, if you want to solve the industry well, just backing into what we talked about earlier, what really you sh everyone should be solving for is is the end to end skilled labor requirement. So, like if you were to measure the, you know, I, I like to talk about houses because it's very easy to understand sure, for sure. any audience. So, just a single family house. How do you build that from scratch, end to end, with the least amount of skilled labor hours? I think when you break down the equation of what everyone needs to solve for, it's really that. To me, three. Uh, no, I agree, and it's yeah. also productivity. And but that backs in the, the hours, the measurement, correct? Of right, yeah. exactly. And then I would say mitigation of cognitive labor, right? You can print yeah. it. You don't need to tell people as much or teach them as much, right? Less supervision. Yeah. Which theoretically is the pitch for 3D printing. But the problem is it's just generally the shell of a home. So Correct. So framing. our audience may understand is you've gotten rid of one trade. Yeah. You still need the roof. They're not printing a roof. You're not printing a plumber, an electrician, electric, mechanical, finish. finishes, right? It's yeah. the door install. It's meaning it's basically took out one lab, one one subcontractor. Yeah, which right? which now you're seeing other 3D printing companies kind of like Diamond Age, which I'm sure you've seen, they're trying to push further into, for example, their 3D printing tool will have like a painting uh, module, right? So they're trying to move into other skilled labor. But what do you think um, its limitation is and why you don't think that's the future? Simple, right? Like your building can't be bigger than the 3D printer. Agreed. So that means yeah. no urban, there's no. like, like you were telling me that, no you're like, what are you going to see, a 50-story 3D printer? Like, what? how is that yeah. going to help so, anybody? So we don't, and, and 3D printing is still really far away from a cost perspective, right? Like, Oh, it still is more expensive? Yeah, okay. It's far away. So, so it's like a novelty for you. Okay, let's go to the other one, the Kateras yeah. of the world. Why did that die? So I, let's start off modular. 
So that one's easier, which Katera is not. So modular for your audience, the easiest way to understand it is imagine you have this room and you literally made this room start to finish somewhere in a giga facility offsite thousands of miles away. And also you, called prefab, right? Or prefab no? different. Okay. Prefab is if you So were, modularity is is the, room, they ate the hotel where they were they they, yes. they they came with boxes and think they, a box goes on an oversized truck, needs yeah. police to escort it effectively. Right. And shows up to the site, and then you stack them. Which was top. the future six years ago, ten years ago. Yeah. Everyone said that's that's the solution. Yeah, it's growing, but it the penetration has been very lackluster. Why? Um a couple of reasons. So first let's start with the gigafactory. Usually there's some gigafactory um cost a lot of money, let's say twenty-five to one hundred and twenty-five million dollars. So huge capital cost to Very. prove that this thesis may be correct. Could huge take risk. years to launch these factories. Okay, when you step foot in these factories, have you ever been to one? I haven't. Okay, it's pretty disappointing. You expect to see like robots and you know proper, like I said, Toyota's TPS system, um, you know lean manufacturing assembly lines. But what you ultimately see is that same skilled labor that's missing from the ecosystem. You know, using a screwdriver, drilling, wearing steel toe boots, wearing hard so a lot hats. less satisfying than you had thought you would be seeing. You still see a human building a box. It's yes. just a controlled environment. Exactly, you've eliminated rain effectively. Then to add to that, your customization level is not that high because, like, if it's a box, it's got to be the same box. What can you really customize from a shape perspective, from kind of certain elements? Right? And then in urban environments with the zoning resolution, well, the you don't even have the space piece. for it, right? The regulatory is a whole different piece because as you can imagine, an inspector can't do their five inspections looking behind, you know, a Right, it's supposed to be completed, right? And yeah. now you're doing leave out. So it's like, you didn't really solve for the amount of housing we but need. to me, the biggest issue is like, it's pretty practical if like, I don't know, this mic gets packaged well and you ship it thousands of miles to all your consumers, right? As like a direct-to-consumer company doesn't really work when it's a you know a million square feet and millions of tons that you have to ship on oversized trucks. Or really any variability, away. right? Or any change anywhere. Yeah, it just right? it breaks. Then like the way I heard it recently, which was really on point, it's like as much as you try to make this controllable, you know, physically in the factory, when you bring it to the site, that's always an uncontrollable. So that thousand mile gap means that if you just mess something up, okay, your lag is now really big. Got to redo it. You got to like and, and honestly, today's today's labor. I mean, you hired you, you hire subs and GCs all sure. the time. You understand, like they're not really you know akin to understanding new things. Well, they're laggards, like we were saying. So they're not even Probably trying the to understand, yeah, right? The, the like they, they don't get it. It could be simple, but they don't understand I mean, they, it. I mean, they bring their own tools to the site. Sometimes right. those tools, like those tools, can't put together you know a modular box. Correct. So, so that was so we said three D printing. That was the issue. Then we said yeah. modular, which everyone was like super excited about, has a ton of issues, it, and we're seeing them fail. It could, it could right? work. It could work. Maybe it could work for hotels and super repeatable product near site. But like capex has to come down because your investment into that gigafactory means that you have to constantly feed it with millions of square feet. And year. the way we finance projects just to mitigate risk, so everyone yeah. understands, is you pay a month. You you yeah. get reimbursed a month, pay, reimburse, pay, reimburse. Yeah, and what we're saying, yeah. it's 80% fronted yeah. with slow payments after. It's exactly. like even the industry itself would need to change in the exactly. way that they want to provide which, capital. Which, by the way, just zooming back to prop tech, construction tech, I think a lot of the limitations of founders in the space, like I have a simple rule. I don't advise prop tech companies if one of the founders doesn't come from the industry because to me, it's an uphill battle. Right. Like you could work with the most innovative developer in the world, but if you don't understand that the limitation is LPs and debt, 
right? I mean, you just missed a really big. Yeah, mark. I had this this conversation about insurance recently, yeah. and there was like this insurance tech, and I was like, "Yeah, insurance, but like, unfortunately, the general contractor never sees the benefit. He could care less. Like, how you're saying we might be able to get it less? He goes, I pay the bill or I don't pay the bill. Like, yeah. he doesn't care, right? Like, I understand you think you're innovating, but if you're not telling him, by the way, it's gonna be ten bucks less, he just doesn't care. Yeah, th this is an interesting topic. You had Brad from Common on here. He has this yeah. new new um. Uh, blog that he does. Yeah. It's amazing. He talks a lot about yeah, like crop co-op and all this stuff and understanding I love it. separate, you know, what the hell is discussion. it called? It's called uh, thesis driven. Thesis driven. It's really and good. it's on Substack. Yeah. It's yeah. very good. Um, but anyways, the, the third one is. So yeah, what was the third one? And by the way, the third one is Kubi Technologies, just so exactly. that everyone knows. Yeah. By the way, he owns a company called Kubi Technologies. Yeah. This is where he's attacking. Exactly. Okay. So boom, what is it? So prefab, imagine you take this room, but you take all the kit of parts for this room, you standardize them. There could be customization and deviation, but ultimately you're creating a standardized kit of parts that get made in some offsite facility and put together on site. The whole purpose is to reduce the variability and to reduce kind of the unknowns by prefabricating. Like imagine you know what goes But not prefabricating a room, prefabricating yeah. a, a, a kit of parts that's, I guess, uh, uh, to a- to Parametrically a, to, designed to fit together effectively on site. And that a human or two humans can deal with and handle. Well, in some cases, some people have oversized and, you know, like you still need, you know, big equipment. So it, there's- levels to it. But prefab effectively is the best way to think about it is Lego blocks or a mm -hmm. kit of parts. That's what prefab right. is. So Legos in construction. Exactly. Right? And because of, what was that math where five times four times three times two, what was the name of that math? Anyone? What's what the type? The type of math where it's, algorithmic you say, math? not algorithmic, where it's like that if you have five different colors, four different shapes, oh, permutations, permutations. Yeah, but because you, you're saying like there's only a certain amount, but permutations basically exactly. say there's still thousands and exactly. hundreds of thousands of ways of putting it together. So that's how we think about it. So like, for example, Toyota has 20 different car models, right? A Camry and like a RAV4, but then 20 other ones. Yeah. Each one can be designed 10 different times. Correct. When you multiply all that, you get hundreds of different options. So that's a way of thinking. Correct. About so, the, so people are like, "Oh, everything will be the same." You're like, "Nothing will be the same yeah. until we make four hundred thousand of them, and exactly. then we may repeat once." Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, there's three different cabinet finishes. Right. If they're good, that's fine. No one cares. Look, like generally in the industry, I think this is going to be important. But like prefab is also not cheaper today. The way that people pitch prefab is, "Hey, you're saving on carry costs." I guess I, I need to define that for for yeah. your listeners. Yeah. So the time that it takes and the longer it takes a developer to do a project, right? The more costs they're taking right, on. Right, because they're paying for the money. They're paying for taxes on the land. They're paying on, you Insurance, know, the yeah, interest, like yes. The quicker you get to cash flow, the better, basically. Mm -hmm. So right now, Prefab is arguing that, hey, this is beneficial for you because you're saving on carry costs. That's fine. But you're a developer. You know firsthand, you don't give, you know. You can curse, sorry. Yeah, you don't really care that much. What you care about is like day one, tell me it's cheaper. Then maybe I'll use it. And I'll oh yeah, it's it. always we have to know today, even yeah. though me and you, our thesis would be, we're still gonna take the risk. Like we don't care. Like yeah. me and you. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying everyone, everyone for else sure. is waiting for proof. For sure. We are not. Exactly. Um, so, okay, anyways, so go, now you new kit of parts. Well, just or, more traditional prefab. Same issues as I described with modular. Gigafactory, lots of capital intensive you know, infrastructure. It needs to travel thousands of miles. Um, so hard to replicate, hard to scale if you're the opco. What business would you say though is an analogy to that? Would you call restoration hardware a prefab furniture maker? 
Yeah, but different because they're a product and they have centralized locations so you can go and like buy Right, so it works. Right? No, no, I'm saying oh, like because that, that does I mean, work today. I mean, today. car companies. Yeah, okay, a car company, right? right? Right, and they can then ship the cars and that cost is in the cost yeah. of the vehicle. So most prefab today, by the way, tries to sell you a kit of parts and they try to plug into like, hey, like you're the GC, go put it together and figure it out, which doesn't work in the industry. No, it because again, it comes to that problem of the labor, not understanding yeah, what the hell they're supposed to be doing. Like, it's all botched in mm -hmm. some capacity. Um, but we can get into what we're doing because it's- Yeah, I want to hear now. We, so you chose prefab. We think it's the solution. It makes right. the most logical sense. Right. And that's what by definition industrialization is, right? Like that is what Boeing has done. That's what car companies have done. They've done exactly this. Right, but you and I already discussed construction is complex, a little bit harder exactly. than trying to make it a complicated Too many business. layers to the onion. Correct. Okay, our solution is threefold. That's kind of the big pillars. One of our big pillars looks... My partner, who's one of the most brilliant people on earth when it comes to the engineering side of our business, like literally, like he's called a 10X engineer by mm -hmm. all the top venture firms in the world. Um, so we, we tie somewhere between, there's a company called Hadrian. They figured out how to do super advanced micro tooling, basically in manufacturing closer to onsite. And they work with a lot of like space companies, basically. So we triangulate there, hence the mobile micro factory. Mm -hmm. Our other triangulation. So is, the first thing is you're creating a micro factory. Micro factory is important. These are that small is mobile. footprint. Yes, which we'll get into in a second. Okay. So these are small footprint factories. The second piece of it. Because you said before, when you get into some of the other modularity, that upfront cost is intense. But if you can do it in a micro, you're mitigating that risk. So the Our upfront cost is not crazy. Our factory is unparalleled. Right. It is okay, so that was first. First yes. was we've created a factory that's less expensive to mitigate that yeah. risk, boom. It's also micro because it needs to move. And that's an important piece of what we do. And that's the third pillar. Well, what was we the second pillar? Um, well, this was the first, sorry, this is the second pillar. Okay, what was the first um, one though? That's uh, prefab? No, the first one was the Hadrian micro factory. The second one was the mobile piece. So I like to use analogies. So like the third pillar is what Amazon has done. Amazon has effectively created last mile distribution for the e-commerce warehousing world, mm -hmm. and it's massively successful. Right. We've done that for, for this prefab slash lean manufacturing ecosystem for construction. We've brought these mobile micro factories closer to the site where you're actually constructing, whether it's on the site or in a parking lot across the street or a field a mile away, it's not thousands of miles. Okay, but so now explain to the contractors. Yeah. So what is it actually? What am I seeing? What am I feeling? What is What is happening? Yeah, so... Yeah, I should have probably started with this. Basically what Kubi is and what we're doing is we're setting the stage to commercialize hundreds of these mobile micro factories to enable developers, builders to build more effectively, more buildings with less labor. That is because it's that factory is near your site. Yeah. So we our product is not a building. It's not a kit of parts. It's not something we sell. Our product is the system, hardware and software, and it is these mobile micro factories. So this is always interesting, but like Elon Musk will be the first person to tell you that Tesla, the cars, that's not the winning solution. That's not the moat. That's not why they have the highest margins. That's mm -hmm. not what took the longest. It's the factory and their blueprint for the factory and the ability to replicate it as they go. Granted, theirs are hard to replicate because they're billion dollar investments, but they can nonetheless replicate it very well. We and our product is the ability to replicate this mobile micro factory with different partners. And that's our third pillar, essentially, which we're more akin to McDonald's than we are a construction company, a development company. We're not 
you know, necessarily a product company. We look like McDonald's. McDonald's is a great analogy, and I think I used it with you last time, mm. right? And the reason why it's an analogy is because I could be the shittiest cook in the world, but I could run the most P&L efficient restaurant. And that's because McDonald's has spent hundreds of thousands of hours iterating on their hardware, their software, their process, their hiring standards, just that end-to-end to allow someone like me, who's never ran a restaurant, to run a really efficient restaurant really well. Fast. Fast. And they can stamp this, and now what, 49,000 times later? That's what we're gearing towards. Um, and that's what we do. So, so what's the, so you have this factory, yeah, so we, it's near a site, what's the input? Yeah, so here's how it works. Basically, um, we have a lot of IP, and uh, as of Recently, no one can do this because we have a lot of IP around it, um, very significant IP around launching these mobile micro factories. The way they launch is it's a containerized solution. So we have about two dozen uh, containers that are custom, and within them are a bunch of machines. Think like you know, complicated shit like robots and stuff. CNC, yes. right? So, so, so things that can fabricate pieces of a building. Exactly. So you, so you, you, some you, some are custom to us, some are off the shelf. We can buy some, just retool them, put our logo on them. You know, effectively they're off the shelf and they can be bought anywhere. So but, a factory with stations, and yes. those stations represent maybe different trades, different pieces of exactly. a product, whatever it is. Like we've taken now in-house, not only just the, the put it together piece, but also the we make windows and glass and pipes and like all the raw elements. So just to, it's kind of hard, not visually, but to describe a factory, like if your viewers can imagine a bunch of containers lined up in a rectangle and they're interior facing, then we inflate this pressurized structure. It's not pressurized Boom. inside. So a factory near a site. Plop. On it, it's not. It's a non-permanent structure. These things can be put on a parking lot. Yep. They can be put on a piece of land. It doesn't matter. And inside them are different stations. Exactly. Robots, our, CNC, our machines. Machine, there's machines. Yeah, exactly. And we digital model our entire factory. So like the software, it, they're the same every time. So we can basically make software around them and digital twin it in Unreal Engine and basically put it into, in quotes, the metaverse. Which is the McDonald's, which is the hamburger yes. comes from here, goes here, three minutes, four minutes, boom, a exactly. hamburger comes out. Exactly. But what we didn't do is reinvent the end product. We work with really traditional folks, the ones that are commenting on our stuff saying, blah, I'll never use this, this is too far-fetched. We work with folks like that. Once they step foot, once they see, they're like, oh, you do that like that, oh, got it. Okay, well, that's compliant, that's mm. great, that's pretty genius, actually. So we've done something really traditional from an end product, but the delivery mechanism, the process is what we're changing, and that's what needs to happen in the industry. Um, but effectively, these factories are fed by about 50 raw inputs. And we chose certain raw inputs to be widely available in most locales. Think like steel, glass, things that you can mostly buy from vendors. We have a solution when we wanna create our own agnostic supply chain as well. Mm -hmm. So imagine like a Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. um, where we're completely self-sufficient. We have containers that effectively line up around the factory. They're like printer cartridges. And the, the factory, end right? result though, is it? Yeah, so the end, so sorry, raw inputs go in. And we make things. So the things we make, I'll give examples. Like we make our own windows. We'll take and we'll you know double right. paint a window, put framing around it, et cetera. Um, we'll make structural steel elements. We'll make interior wall panels. So things like that. Then you know the way to think about it is some things are custom every time. So like one house to the next. Some things are repeatable. We just cut constantly. Like you know certain sheetrock, certain you know piping, like PEX piping, et cetera. Um, but the end product is a finished kit of parts. Some of that kit of parts, it, we obviously don't make toilets. So when we finish off the conveyor, we pack, say, a toilet or a, you know an interior finish element with kind of what we make. And those things get shipped to the site. But our process doesn't stop at the site. So there's about 29 times this gets shipped to the site. 
ties to the five inspection processes of a home, but we go from making the foundation to the interior finish, all end to end. So our lean manufacturing process, you know, it's off the conveyor, but then it actually happens and the same crew that's being employed in the factory plus more is the one that puts the building together effectively. The thing we solve is there's no skilled labor here. Right. That is the biggest thing we solve. And that's because like McDonald's, yep. you're gonna create a mobile first application. So or- there's a ton of software that drives the non-skilled piece. So um, one important thing is like, I'll, I'll use like real examples. Inside the factory, there's about 35 people, all unskilled. Those 35 people have to execute hundreds of tasks. So that means that we're not dependent on a single person that has to train to do one station. Everyone does everything at once. Like the way we're thinking about it is we have these Android phones, we have an app, you know, John Smith, he gets a ping, says go to station 29C, and it shows you an Unreal Engine what to do live. Does it, okay, now go to station you know, 16B. And this happens continuously and an algorithm is pushing out these tasks. But when you're on site, we have And another, trackable, and know how much trackable. you're getting done and everything. like continually learning. We have 70 cameras inside the factory. They're like, I, I don't wanna get into the super complicated well, let's, software okay. stuff. Okay, so it makes sense. But we also go on site. So we're doing something really unique as well. So like, you know this, I mean, your subs bring their own tools. When I found that out, to me, that was crazy. My partner designed a whole tool system that we bring on the pad. Those tools are tied to how you put together the kit of parts. Which is like Ikea, right? They're giving you the tools. So it's right? funny that you say Ikea. Oh, like, like, some background on my partner so you understand. Like I come from this world of real estate and you know more of a business background. My partner is literally maybe the best hardware person I've ever seen in action. Mm-hmm. Maybe I haven't seen a lot, but he's incredible. Like he writes books in this space. He's done lean manufacturing. He's built three businesses in the deep tech ecosystem, all self-funded. Um, so he knows how to run really big engineering teams. So when he sees things, he tries to improve, but not so much that it doesn't make sense and the world can't adopt it. But the tool thing made a lot of sense. You bring the tool, it's like a shelving system, and that's the part, you know, that that's what you use, and mm-hmm. those are the tools you put things together with. But anyways, we end up putting together a building. In terms of stats, where we're cost reducing is today in the US, I'd say, you know, 70% of the cost relative to the hard cost are mm-hmm. labor related. Um, which is a lot. We yeah, have expensive course. labor because there's a lack of it. And there's, yeah. Yeah, it's that simple. Um, we're which is re- why we're telling our kids to get into it. 100%. It's a money-making machine. But we, we try to reduce that 70%. That's the big reduction. So we're trying to reduce the skilled labor by a factor of seven to 10 times. Okay. We just did a couple of case studies. Here's where we're shaking out. Um, typical single-family home takes about 5,000 labor hours to build, skilled mm-hmm. labor hours, end-to-end, You know, typically a crew of 12, like 12 months, et gotcha. cetera. We're building a single family home for about 1,700 unskilled labor hours right now. So where we think we're gonna shake out on costs when we launch these factories, the COGS, meaning the cost us, not necessarily what the factory sells to Agreed. I understand. end user, around 100 to $110 a foot, which you know construction, that is a, you know. Huge savings. And this isn't stick built. These are steel high quality homes. So, let, so tell me just cause we've run out of time. So where are you today? When are we gonna see this in action? So to start with, uh, deep tech takes a long time to commercialize. We're mm-hmm. doing something massive. We're about 190,000 engineering hours into this, team of about 90 engineers. So it's a lot. Um, that being said, we're now setting stage to commercialize. We're starting to sign our first contracts and 
the way we work is we partner locally. We're never going to be a better builder, developer than you, than whoever else locally mm -hmm. is you, right? So we like to partner with folks like you. And we launch a factory together, which is its own standalone business, like a franchise, but it's not a franchise. And you use our hardware, software, and that's how we launch. But when will we see it? Give me a timeline. So our first one is signing ASAP. In about 12 months, there'll be one in the U.S., followed so, by four more. I think that's important because to me, yep. out of the things I hear that are really disrupting, this is one that I definitely want to watch because yep. we saw, like you were stating, 3D printing, and we don't have this understanding. It didn't do anything. I feel like this could make a huge difference. We think it's right. It's working. We're, we're seeing the conversations we're having, the adoption that, that folks are resonating. And by the way, the cost to launch one of these is, you know, I'll say offline to you, is not a lot. Um, so anyone in the mid-market space launches one of these all of a sudden has secured being you know, a competitor or having a competitive advantage in the real estate space for the next 50 years because today there's no advantage. You're competing with everyone. All the information Agreed. is the same now. It's becoming like what the stock market became you know, in early 2000s. That's right. There's no arbitrage. This is an arbitrage. And an efficiency. Yeah. All right, Al, I appreciate you, brother. Yeah, this one is sure. fascinating, no appreciate doubt. It. Thank you for coming through. We got to talk about this conclusion, you know? What did we just hear? What do we know? We found out that a lot of these things I think are kind of gimmicky, 3D printing, prefab. But one thing that definitely has the ability to change the game is kit of parts, right? He was talking about how the capital expenditure is so much, he's come up with a solution to that. What I find fascinating is we know that robotics and CNC and these machines can actually limit labor hours. Now, over the next 12 months, he's going to start to get it done. And let's see if the, so what the theory that he's stating actually gets done. To me, this is one of the most fascinating things out there. Thank God this homeboy's in NYC, so I get to meet him. And we've got to track the way that Kubi Technologies is disrupting the space because he's right. We need more housing. The demand is there, and yet we can't seem to get out of our way. Maybe he's come up with that solution. So we're going to find out. You better pay attention to what we're saying because Real Tech Talk is bringing you that fire like guys like Alex at Kubi Technologies. Pay attention.